welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on what is now our 53rd episode. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, we just wanted to remind you that if you do enjoy these podcast episodes, please feel free to tell your family and friends about them, take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians, tag Jack, tag myself, And if you are interested in checking out some of our other content, we are also on YouTube if you just search The Bodybuilding Dietitians. And if you're interested in any of our coaching services, you can also find us at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. And all of these links will be linked in the description box below. Now, without further ado, we've got an exciting question and answer episode lined up for you today. So we're going to jump right in. So Jack, what is the first question for the day? So this question is all about my fitness pal. And the question asker basically has a concern in regards to the calories and macros. So essentially the macros when added up, so when multiplying carbs and protein by four, fats by nine, and adding those all together to get total calories, those calories are actually different to the calories displayed by MyFitnessPal. Man, MyFitnessPal is like notorious for having this issue. Do you wanna just talk about all the issues with MyFitnessPal? Yeah, I think that would be a great way to start. <laughs> Not that we have anything against the app, like we, we both use it and think it's really good. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, so essentially we both come across this issue as well and with all of our clients. And what we do personally is we don't actually use the calorie calories on my fitness power. We just use it for tracking macros. And the reason why this is, is essentially because the macros and calories don't add up. And there are a couple reasons as to why that is. So the first one, which I think is probably the largest is just human error, because all of those MyFitnessPal entries that you see are all actually done by like humans, like you, me, whoever it may be. When we create a new entry, it goes into their database. So if someone like is just purely interested in the macros and they don't want to add the calories, then they'll just add a random calorie number or they won't bother convert. Like they'll just, if it's in kilojoules, they won't really bother calculating it properly to turn it into calories and all that sort of stuff, so. Nothing's worse than when someone sees like a kilojoule number and then they'll put that in as the calorie (laughs) number. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, that's even worse, of course. And I find that the the higher your macros are, the more error there is. Like, uh, so like for me compared to Tierra, like my calories might be off by like four or 500, whereas hers might only be off by 100. And I assume that's just because the, the greater effect of eating more. Yeah, definitely. And something else that really ties into uh, why the calories and the macros are different for a lot of different products is because quite a few products do add sugar alcohols. And this can be a huge issue because sugar alcohols per gram, they contain on average four calories, right? So they're very, very similar to carbohydrates. But because they're not technically a carbohydrate, Food companies don't actually need to list sugar alcohols in the total carb amount. And I actually ran into this issue a few days ago with one of my clients because uh, she's chewing gum throughout the day, right? And obviously the gum has sugar alcohols in it and we count those as carbs. So we need to 
count those in MyFitnessPal and track them. But when you actually put in some gum entries into MyFitnessPal, it'll tell you like, oh, this one piece of gum, it has eight calories, right? but it doesn't list anything there on the carbohydrates. So it'll add those calories to your total amount, but it won't add the carbs. So what I would say is that if you are consuming products with sugar alcohols, it does make tracking a little bit more tricky because if you do wanna be accurate, right? You need to keep track of how many sugar alcohols and in terms of grams you're actually eating throughout the day and then you're actually going to need to add that amount to your total carb amount. So let's say that you ate eight grams of sugar alcohols throughout the day and your daily carb target was 200 grams. Therefore, from other carbohydrates on MyFitnessPal, you should only reach 192 grams and then that you know that you ate those extra eight grams from sugar alcohols if you actually wanna be accurate with your tracking. Yeah, and the other problem we frequently see is just the huge number of entries that is on my fitness power, like especially for something like eggs or you buy a steak or something like that, which doesn't always have a barcode. You sort of just have to go searching or something like a banana or any sort of fruit or vegetable. Like you could pretty much pick anything from like the barcode if it has a barcode or randomly type it in. It could be from Tesco's if you're living in the UK or Woolworths from here. But the worst thing is, is even if you're in Australia choosing something like Tesco's or Sainsbury's, which are English supermarket companies like that, you don't want to choose something far-fetched like that. You want to try and keep it as consistent as possible. And that's why we always try and steer everyone to the nutritional database for Australia or whatever respective country you're in. So in Australia, it's NUTTAB, N-U-T-T-A-B, just one word. And in the U.S., it's U-S-D-A, U-S-D-A. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like sifting through my fitness pal entries can be like a minefield. If you do type in something just generic, like banana or chicken wing, right? And man, imagine typing in chicken wing, you'll get like 20,000 different chicken wing entries. And some will range from 60 calories per chicken wing up to like 450 calories per chicken wing. And if you don't know which one to pick, you're pretty much just taking a stab in the dark. So uh, that's definitely an issue that we have run into with both ourselves and our clients with trying to uh, you know, sift our way through the entries. Some other things we see with MyFitnessPal as well is their designations for sugar and sodium. So they do set an upper limit for sugar and sodium where they basically recommend the most amount you should be eating. And yeah, we don't really agree with that since like 76 grams of sugar should not just be like an upper limit for someone. Yeah, it just doesn't really make much sense. And especially if you're eating a lot of fruits and like vegetables with higher sugar contents like sweet potato and potato, there's nothing wrong with that. And yeah, I don't really think my fitness power should be setting a limit on that. And the same with sodium as well. Like what if you're a really active individual who or a laborer who works in the sun in Australia, like you're going to be needing more than 2300 milligrams of sodium per day. Yeah, that's definitely an issue I've run into with the sugar, you know, it just kind of giving a blanket approach for how much sugar you should be consuming per day. 
but it doesn't actually distinguish which like source that comes from. So whether or not, you know, you might be consuming over four serves of fruit per day, or I remember back in my um, middle of my improvement season, I was eating like a kilogram of pumpkin a day and it would shoot my sugar up on my fitness pal, you know, way up. So it would say that I was eating, you know, like well over a hundred grams per day, which isn't an issue at all because guys, we just have to remember that, you know, sugar is pretty much just an umbrella term and everything in the body is always going to be broken down to glucose. So there's nothing wrong with sugar per se. Perhaps something good that my fitness pal could do though is that it could actually give you one of those pie charts to say, you know, what sources of food your sugars came from. So whether or not they came from more refined sources, like if you were eating a lot of ice cream or if you were eating, you know, a lot of jam or jelly or something like that. Or if you were just eating fruit and pumpkin, I think that would be really good. Uh, I think another issue with my fitness pal is that sometimes it doesn't calculate the fiber in foods. And again, this usually does come down to the entries that you're using. So if you type in something like lettuce or cucumber into my fitness pal and pick a random entry, uh, sometimes it doesn't even include fiber amounts. So it might say that there's no fiber at all. And sometimes I've run into this issue with my clients that I take on in the first few weeks and they're tracking. And, uh, you know, their fiber will be like 15 grams per day. And I'll ask them, you know, like, hey, so, you know, what's what's going on this last week? You know, it looks like your fiber's been a little bit low. And they're like, yeah, you know, that's really weird because I feel like I'm eating so many different pieces of fruits and so many vegetables. And I'll do a diet recall with them. And hell yeah, they're eating a lot of plant-based foods. So in that case, it's usually an issue with my fitness pal. So, uh yeah, there are a heck of a lot of issues when it comes to tracking. That's uh, again why it kind of reinforces you will never hit your macros perfectly. <laughs> yeah, not that's not to say we don't love my fitness pal though. Like we've used a couple of different apps and I don't believe that any other applications come close to yeah, what my fitness pal does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic, but just like anything, you know, there's always room for improvements. <laughs> So our next topic will be on basically the metabolism. So this episode, we have got quite a few questions which are similar. So we thought we would make the most of that and essentially do a few grouping of topics, which is something a little bit different. So yeah, essentially the first question was, uh, the question asked was wondering about whether the body actually becomes more efficient at burning calories or it's just the body's natural cues to slow down rate of weight loss. For example, neat thermic effect of food and smaller body types, etc. And the second part was, so in an ideal world, would you burn the same amount of calories if you moved just as much as you did at the start of prep or does the body actually burn less? Would be great to hear from you and have a nice day. Thank you. So the other question was, does your maintenance calories change after a significant time of being in a calorie deficit? So these are two really great questions, you know, and when we think about the metabolism, it's incredibly complex, guys. So metabolism is pretty much all the different chemical processes that are going on inside your body. And it's how we convert that energy that we eat through food into actual energy in our body, just to maintain normal daily function, you know, homeostasis, basically to maintain life. And I guess when you think about your metabolic rate, 
it's the rate at which your cells have to, you know, convert energy and turn over in order to basically sustain life, right? And also to sustain a certain body weight or a certain body composition. And apart from body composition, you know, there's a heck of a lot of things that are going to influence your metabolic rate. So for example, your age, are you a male or are you a female? You know, what is your current health status? What's your current hormonal status? How much muscle do you have? How much fat do you have? How much do you weigh? How tall are you? How active are you? How much exercise do you do? Like how much fiber do you eat? There's so many different things that are going to influence your metabolic rate and essentially how many calories you require as an individual to maintain a certain body composition. So yeah, Jack, let's answer this question. So it's pretty much saying, in an ideal world, would you burn the same amount of calories if you move just as much as you did at the start of prep? I basically want to say no. You know, if comparing the start of prep to the end of prep, obviously you're in an energy deficit, you're losing weight. Your body's not going to require the same amount of calories to maintain your new body weight regardless if you're doing the same amount of exercise and expending the same amount of energy. Yeah, I think the most obvious thing for me to touch on first is if you're 10 kilos lighter, you're lugging around 10 kilos less of body weight, and that's obviously going to require less energy. The other major component here is also NEAT, which is non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And this is one of your body's other methods of reducing energy expenditure. So essentially it'll downregulate all those other little movements that you do throughout the day. For example, like tapping your foot, scratching your finger, whatever it is. <laughs> a lot of people, you know, they talk with their hands. You know, I'm doing it right now. I'm moving my hands in like some sort of weird circular motion. They just stop doing these little things. And if you look at someone who's in a chronic energy deficit, they're like a statue, man. Their body's trying so hard to try to not burn one extra calorie that it really, really needs to. Mm, you'll even hear it in people's voices as well when like, I don't know, maybe if you go back to when Tira wasn't in prep, she was a little bit more high pitched then. <laughs> compared to... <laughs> yes, my, uh, my, my voice is trying to save calories now. <laughs> well, yeah, even especially in guys, I would say it's more obvious, but like they'll just not be as enthusiastic when they talk. So like, I can't wait for when I'm in prep and you guys get to hear that. <laughs> oh, it's gonna be like slow motion. Man, these podcasts, I'm gonna have to like double speed on you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but definitely, you know, some of these things are just outside our control, guys. So especially things like respiratory rate and heart rate. So when you are in an energy deficit, your body will naturally slow down some processes in order to conserve energy. So respiratory rate, the amount of times that you breathe per minute will slow down and especially your heart rate. And this is super interesting in terms of the heart rate because I've noticed this during my prep, right? I've been dieting now for 12 weeks, and at the very start of my prep when I was 68 kilograms, resting heart rate was actually 61 beats per minute during the day, and at nighttime during sleep, it was usually around like 52 beats per minute, right? Now, 12 weeks later, during the day, my resting heart rate is 49, so 12 beats less per minute 
every single hour, every single day. And during my sleep, man, two nights ago, my heart rate dropped down to 38 beats per minute. Like, talk about my body trying to conserve calories. That is significant. And, you know, especially respiratory rate, at rest, how many times you're breathing per minute. These things are outside our our control, you know, and you don't necessarily want them to increase because if you wanted your resting heart rate to increase, your body's going to have to release, you know, more noradrenaline, adrenaline, more catecholamines. You're going to actually feel stressed, right? And on edge at rest. You don't want to have a higher heart rate than usual. And if you want to start increasing your respiratory rate, you can't just go running 24-7, okay, or climbing up hills, like, or panting all the time. Sometimes you just have to accept these things. So I guess, yes, bottom line is that you will burn less calories when you lose weight. You know, it's just part of it. Your body doesn't require that many calories anymore to sustain your new body weight. And also the body doesn't really want to lose weight most of the time. You know, once you're within a healthy body fat percent range and healthy weight, it's like, hey man, what are you doing? I'm kind of comfortable here. So it will fight back. Yeah, that's a great summary. And the other component of this question was also in regards to does your maintenance calories change after a significant time of being in a calorie deficit? And yeah, the short answer is yes. And the reason why is because as we basically just said, your metabolism can adapt either way. So in a surplus, if you eat more food, your metabolism will adapt to that and you'll require more food to gain weight because again, you want to stay in homeostasis. And of course, the same being said for in a deficit, you'll adapt to those to that lower energy. And therefore, it does make sense that your maintenance calories to maintain your body weight will be less in a deficit compared to in a surplus or because that's the whole point of maintenance. If you're going to maintain a lower body weight, you require less food or less energy, then you need to maintain a higher body weight. It's kind of just uh, the laws of thermodynamics as well. Yeah, it's just something we got to accept, you know. So, Jack, what would you say, obviously, for a client or yourself, someone going through, you know, a comp prep period, how do you combat these things? So essentially, as Tira said before, it's kind of your body's natural response and you can't change that aspect of your heart rate or respiratory rate. However, you can basically monitor energy output, for example, your daily steps and your training sessions and of course what you eat as well. So those are going to be the main factors. Yeah, exactly. So that's why, you know, especially during the end of a prep, you'll see people doing more cardiovascular work. They're expending more energy in terms of daily steps compared to at the beginning of their prep. And they might even be at the same rate of loss. So someone might have started prep, right? And they might have been doing 10 or 12,000 steps and losing, you know, maybe half a kilogram per week. But now because they're a lower body weight, they've got to do 15 or 20,000 steps per day to try to achieve that same rate of loss. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to another topic and pretty much just accept that the body will fight back when you're trying to get shredded. Okay, so this next one's from Corinne and she's asked, how do you deal with feeling like you're not muscular enough or lean enough? Damn, what a question. Yeah, I think we can all resonate with this one and we've all felt probably both of those symptoms. And yeah, definitely Tira and I have. 
And I would honestly say that I did used to struggle with this a lot more compared to how I do now. And most of that comes down for me personally is just trusting in the process and trusting what you're doing is right. And you'll always have days where you look good and days where you look bad because it can be influenced by so many variables. So let's say if you're not muscular enough or even lean enough as well, like are you doing what you need to do in the gym to become more muscular or to become lean enough? Uh, is your diet on point? Are you doing what you can in order to progress? And if you are, then there's no need to worry. And you just kind of need to accept that some days you will be good, some days will be bad. And yeah, for example, if you're a female and you're on your cycle, then like that might influence how you look. Like, have you just eaten a big meal? Uh, are you feeling a bit bloated if you have some GI distress? So all of those things can influence how you look and just, yeah, for me personally, it's just a matter of accepting that sometimes that happens. Yeah, I think a huge part of this is also like comparison is the thief of joy. And, you know, we're all on social media. We're all looking at other people's physiques all the time and we're always comparing them to our own as much as we don't want to admit it. You know, it's almost like a human default to compare components of our lives and components of our bodies compared to other people. But we have to remember, guys, that social media isn't real life. It's a highlight reel and a hell of a lot of pictures on there, they're illusions, you know? There's people on there who are only looking their best because they are in the absolute best lighting. They've got a pump, you know? They probably got their boyfriend to take 150 photos and they picked the best one, right? They might be photoshopped like, it's not always realistic. So try your absolute best to not compare yourself to these people on social media. Stay in your own lane and just focus on doing your best because that's all you can really do. And you know, this question really resonates with me right now because I'm in prep, you know, and it's a competition. It's a physique competition. And I'm going to be competing against other people and we are solely marked on how we look. Okay, so it's totally normal for me sometimes to wake up in the morning, you know, and be like, man, I'm so flat or have I even grown any muscle or like, am I too small or maybe I feel too big? Oh my God, am I on track? Am I going to be lean enough? All of this stuff. But just like Jack said, you have to trust the process, okay? And, you know, just make sure that you are following the plan, you know, and you are ticking those boxes every single day and you're controlling what is in your control. And that's the best you can do, really, honestly. Like, that's the best you can do. And I'd really say just look, from look at where you came from. Progress photos are freaking awesome, okay? If you are ever in self-doubt of, man, have I even, has my body even changed? Look at photos from years ago from what you look like and compare it to now and be like, damn, you know, I did grow an ass. Or like, look, my legs are twice the size. Or, oh my God, finally, I do have some cap shoulders. I didn't even used to have shoulders, you know? So progress photos can be freaking awesome. But yeah, ah, that's that's all I can really say is um, just make sure that you're following the plan, stay in your own lane. And Joey Cantlin actually made a really, really good post about this. It was quite a few months ago on his story, but he made the point that, you know, 
don't compare yourself to people at nine weeks out, eight weeks out, 20 weeks out. Remember that, you know, the only day that really counts for how you look is show day, right? So it just matters that you look your best on show day. And he also did make the other point that remember, it is a competition, so don't be surprised that other people are trying to look their best as well, all right? <laughs> ah. Yeah, that's a really good point. And there, literally every day is an opportunity for something to go wrong or something to go right, of course, as well. So yeah, definitely don't be comparing yourself to others during a prep. Yeah, and especially guys, remember your age too, okay? So I know myself as a 22 year old, I cannot be comparing myself to previous Miss Bikini Olympias who are 35 years old and have been training for two decades, okay? So remember how young you are sometimes and remember that the people you're comparing yourself to literally have decades of a head start on you. So uh, yeah, just keep chipping away day by day. And if you are consistent, you know, and you are dedicated enough and you keep freaking going over the months and the years and the decades, you will get there, okay? But yeah, that's one of the biggest things. Do not compare yourself to someone who is 10 or 20 years older than you and has much greater muscular maturity, especially in bodybuilding. We have to remember it's a marathon sport. People peak in like their 40s and their 50s. Well, bodybuilders. <laughs> so those are some great points and we'll move on to the next questions now. And these ones are all about bulking. So we got a few questions on this topic and I'll read them out now. So the first one is how to set up a successful bulking phase. I'm really new here, but I love your podcast. Thank you for listening. And the next one is, could you guys possibly talk about the pros and cons of consistently being in a surplus for a year, as opposed to doing a surplus mini cut, surplus mini cut, etc., for muscle gain? So yeah, these are two great questions. And to start off, like it is important to mention that there is more than one right way to set up a bulking phase for the individual and will depend entirely on what their circumstances, their experience, whether they're competing or wanna compete, how long do they have until their next competition, all that sort of stuff. But like for me at least, I think there are a few key points that we can touch on. And number one, will always come back to time, especially if you're a natural athlete, because realistically, if you give yourself a three month off season, you're not going to be able to make it like differences to your physique in that time to get on stage. And so, yeah, the first instance is planning out how much time you need. We would probably recommend at least one year, if not longer. So let's say you have a two year long off season. The next thing is to think about what weight you would be on stage competing at and therefore go back from there and see realistically how much is a good amount of weight for me to gain. And again, especially if you're a natural athlete, if you're gaining 20 to 25 kilos above stage weight or your predicted next stage weight, then that's gonna to lead to some problems because dieting off 20 to 25 kilos is not a good idea because you'll just lose a lot of lean mass during that process and it's just making it like unnecessarily difficult. So this is especially uh, relevant to the second question about being in a consistent surplus as opposed to uh, surplus mini cut, etc. Because there is a fine balance between like, sure, you could be in a very so slow surplus for two years 
of like 0.25 kilos a month and like get to up about 10 kilos above stage weight, which would be a good place to begin a comp prep. But we then have to weigh out the pros and cons of being in a very slow surplus. And we know now that it is going to be more beneficial to be in a slightly more aggressive surplus in order to gain muscle. So that's where being in the surplus mini cut sort of process really does help because realistically the mini cut doesn't take long you can lose if you're a guy you can be quite aggressive with it even a female lose up to one 1.5 of your body weight each week and just get in and out as fast as possible and get back to gaining and i think we can, i can speak for both of us in saying that's our preferred method yeah, certainly. If you're gaining at way too slow of a rate, you're you're likely to, you know, sacrifice how much progress you're actually going to make. So like Jack said, if you're only gaining 0.25 kilograms max per month, like that's difficult to even quantify considering how much the scale can fluctuate day to day. So yeah, that's one thing. Also, another thing is that if you gain way too much weight, way too quickly, we have to remember guys that fat cells can undergo hyperplasia. So hyperplasia means that there is a increase in the number of cells, right? But the issue with this is that if you gain a lot of weight really, really rapidly, you're going to increase fat cell production. But the thing is when you lose weight, those cells, they do shrink, they do become smaller, but the cell itself still stays there. So that's why you'll see people who, I'm talking about extreme circumstances now, people who might've been morbidly obese, they've lost a significant amount of weight, but they have a lot of loose skin. That's because they still have those cells, right? So fat cells can undergo hyperplasia. Unfortunately, and it sucks because it would be awesome if uh, muscle cells could undergo hyperplasia, but muscle cells can only undergo hypertrophy. So hypertrophy is the increase in the size of a cell. So we, we only have a set number of muscle cells, but by doing resistance training, those cells can enlarge, but un unfortunately they can't replicate and we can't get more. Man, the human body sucks in that case. Why the, why the hell would it want us to get super duper fat, but we can't, you know, build heaps and heaps of muscle? Like, what the hell? Anyway, that was a bit of a side tangent, but that just, oh man, evolution, what were you thinking? <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's also this uh, compound called myosatin, which humans have. I think most animals have it, but it basically regulates how much muscle you can have in short terms. And if you guys Google like myostatin deficiency, like you'll see, I think it's quite common in some certain types of bulls and like they're literally like a ton of muscle literally this is freaking big. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't uh, mind being born with that genetic deficiency. <laughs> Yeah, do you think you'd be able to compete in a Natty Federation? Dude, I would be a bodybuilder. <laughs> Bodybuilding would not be an umbrella term for me. I would be a bodybuilder, all right? <laughs> Heavyweight. <laughs> but yeah, so essentially what we do for that improvement season to sum up, like set yourself a time frame, set how much weight realistically is appropriate for you to gain in certain blocks. So like for me personally, I actually did a video on this on the YouTube channel about my improvement season road to 2021. So like I gained 10 kilos from 
February to September this year and did a mini cut from 90 down to 86. And I'm bulking again from 86 to around 93 and mini cutting again after that and so on. So I basically stop at that point where it's just gonna be unproductive for me to keep putting on weight because like one point of, like it's a productivity point is reached. And also it's just uncomfortable for me. It's getting a bit difficult to train and yeah, I don't want to have to take off like 15 to 20 kilos um, in my comp wrap. Yeah, exactly. And the awesome thing about doing mini cuts is that because you are at a higher body fat percentage, you can still diet on relatively decent food. You are not at a risk of muscle loss, guys, if you keep your protein intake adequate and you keep resistance training. So it's really a win to literally shred some fat but maintain your muscle. And it's also a little bit motivating too because if you're like Jack and you're committing to a three-year improvement season, man, can you imagine gaining that entire time? Like you'd want to be able to strip down a little bit, you know, see some of your really hard work paying off, you know, get your appetite signals back and then go again. So it's like, like start and go, start and go. Yeah, and it just makes the process way more fun. But I guess, you know, the main thing is, is yeah, Time frame, how much do you need to gain and plan on from there? And you know, you can divide your time frame up so that you say, okay, I want to stick to this plan and make sure that I'm gaining at least half a kilogram per month or something. I just can't emphasize the enough the importance of having a plan to hold yourself accountable. Or especially if you're working with a coach, you know, through an improvement season phase, make sure you guys have a plan laid right out so you're not just kind of going with it so this next question is by kyle and he asks if one day you don't completely feel like going to the gym should you go to the gym and attempt half your workout or lower the volume intensity or should you just not go at all so this is a good question and again i'm sure many people have been in this boat before especially if you work like a fairly intense job um, as a laborer or tradie um, or mechanic, like I'm sure at the end of the day, you're feeling pretty beat up. And sometimes you do have to work up the motivation to get there sometimes. And like that's compared to Tierra and I who sort of train at our own luxury, which we're very fortunate to be able to do. And the answer to this question is going to be very individual depending on the person's circumstances But in my own personal experience, I think that exercise does release a lot of endorphins. So if you're not really feeling up to it, I would at least try and get there and start the session. And especially like uh, resistance training where you do get a very direct return for your investment, like you get a good pump, um, good blood flow, (laughs) all that sort of stuff. And it does release a lot of endorphins. So I think usually you'll end the session um, very glad that you did go. Yeah, I think that there's just so many different things to take into account. Like, is this just a one-off thing? You know, like, have you been really consistent with your training, you know, over the past weeks, over the past months, over the past years, but you've just had a freaking exhausting day and you've gotten home from work and you're like, oh my God, I am way too tired to go to the gym today. You know, if if it's a case like that and it's an anomaly, I would say that probably I would listen to your cues. You know, if you are exhausted and 
This is a huge thing. If you don't think that it's going to be a productive session, or if you think that actually going to the gym is going to cause you anxiety, cause you stress, personally, I would avoid it, you know, if it's just a one-off thing. But I wouldn't stay at home and, you know, sulk or something like that. I would still try to do something. So I might try to, you know, go outside for a light walk or walk the dog or do some stretching, you know, like Jack was talking about blood flow. We're not just talking about blood flow to your biceps and getting an epic pump. Talking about blood flow to your brain, okay? It makes you- Yeah, that's totally what I was saying. (laughs) It makes you feel better, you know? So I would say in that case, if you know it's gonna be a really stressful, anxious, unproductive session and it happens once in a blue moon, give yourself a break and go again tomorrow. Remember, it's about getting in all of your sessions in during that week. And one training session is not gonna make you and it's also not gonna break you. But I would also say that if this is happening on a consistent basis, like, you know, if you find that you're regularly feeling really fatigued, really run down, you're not motivated to go to the gym, I would have a good solid look at your training program and say, okay, is it really realistic for me to be training five times a week, you know? Should I maybe cut it back down to four? So I would have a good look at that just so that in the long run, you know, you can be more committed to the plan because remember, it really is about consistency over time. And I guess the last thing to touch on again is discipline. You know, we're not always motivated to go to the gym. Even Jack and I, believe it or not, we're not always like, let's go train. You know, like some days you wake up and you don't always feel like that, but it is about discipline, especially at the rear end of competition prep. You know, when energy levels are low and you are tired, you know, and you're like, oh my God, no matter how much caffeine I consume, I really don't want to go train legs right now. You know, that's just exhausting, right? It's about discipline and it's about getting yourself there and literally just getting it done. So I guess those are just a few things to consider. So yeah, to actually answer the second half of that question, I would probably recommend if you're really having an off day, not going to the gym that day, but trying to make it up, maybe on one of your rest days or rearranging the training days. Alternatively, you could still go to the gym and either decrease the volume slightly and maintain the intensity, or you could lower the intensity and increase the volume because ultimately volume is the main driver of hypertrophy. But at the same time, if you're doing a 50 kilo squat instead of 100 kilos, it's probably not really going to have any benefit either. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're gonna finish on this last question of the day, which was asked by Candice. And it says, how do you feel about the food is medicine mantra? Wow, the amount of times we've heard this as dietitians, you know, food is medicine. What do you think? Yeah, so it might sound weird coming from us, but I, both of us don't believe that food is medicine. Like medicine has a very direct purpose and it has evolved considerably to the extent where you're not going to be able to like substitute like a, a food or something grown from the earth compared to like a corticosteroid for reducing inflammation if you have like uh, Crohn's disease or something like that. So yeah, food is incredibly important for preventing certain issues. Like if you have diabetes, 
What was your diet like beforehand? Was that a contributing factor for you having type 2 diabetes? It likely was, and a lack of exercise combined. So that's sort of my consensus. Yeah, I could not agree more. You know, consuming a nutritious diet filled with plenty of plant-based foods, you know, is really going to help you prevent those lifestyle-related diseases. So from, you know, metabolic syndrome and becoming, you know, chronically overweight or obese, you know, or having, you know, organ failure and all of these different issues that sometimes do come from a very, very poor diet. But just like Jack said, you know, if you follow those nutritional patterns and you do have a poor diet, once you do get yourself in the boat of, you know, you have chronic liver failure from perhaps being an alcoholic or, you know, you have had such high blood glucose levels and you are very overweight, you know, and your pancreas is starting to shut down. Unfortunately, food just can't replace the exogenous insulin that you're going to have to be taking, you know, in order to shuttle that glucose into your cells. So once you kind of get yourself into that boat, you really do need to listen to your doctor and take your prescribed medications because God, the amount that medicine and pharmacology has advanced in the last century alone it is unbelievable, you know? Now we have vaccines and we have so many different medications that are curing us of very quickly and curable illnesses that people a century or two used to die from, okay? So yeah, food is freaking awesome, but if you are critically ill, guys, it's it's not gonna cure cancer, okay? So yeah, I, I guess that's pretty much our consensus on it and our bottom line. But you know, that doesn't dismiss the fact that we still think you should have a very wholesome and nutritious diet if you are ill or if you are chronically ill. But you do need to consume that food in conjunction with the medication that has been prescribed by your doctor. Yeah, all right. So I think that's a good way to end that uh, Q&A, but we will finish on our very last question for the day, which is one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, what did you learn? So what I learned this week is again about puppies because I'm reading this great book in preparation for our dog arriving in January. And it's all about positive reinforcement. So let's say your dog is doing something they're not supposed to be doing, like biting your shoe. And often they'll do that just to get your attention. So if you respond to them and say, stop doing that, one, that's negative reinforcement and it's not really great for your relationship. Two, you've basically given them your attention. So they've kind of won and then that's a reinforcement for them to keep biting the shoe to get your attention. So what you're actually meant to do is basically provide a distraction that they didn't know it was you. So one thing is like, dropping a pan or creating a loud diversion or like even they recommend spraying them subtly so they don't know it's you with like a water bottle or like a um, plant sprayer or something and basically when they stop doing uh, what they're doing you then praise them for stopping and then that basically gets the message through to them after multiple attempts. So yeah guys in January you just wait there might be some YouTube videos out there of a uh... Jack hiding behind the wall, you know, and Sam tries to chew on his shoe and he uh, takes out a squirter bottle and sprays her and she goes, oh my gosh. <laughs> but then we, um, we redirect her to a toy or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that'll be me. And what did you learn this week, Tiara? 
Uh, okay, so this week I actually learned a little bit about spider fighting. So Jack and I went to the beach last week with our friends Kate and Oliver, and Oliver actually grew up in the Philippines. And over there, it's very popular for people to have pet spiders and to have their spiders fight, you know, and they bet on the spiders and they win money and all this stuff. But uh, Oliver is pretty much saying that you actually keep your spider in a matchstick box and you know you keep them in there and he was teaching us how he actually gets the spider to fall asleep so what he does is he slightly opens up the box and he does this little blow of air into the box and it makes the spider apparently immediately fall asleep so now I have learned how to make spiders sleep yes that's what I learned this week <laughs> Okay, so guys, that's going to be a wrap for our 53rd podcast episode. Remember, if you enjoyed it, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag the bodybuilding traditions, tag Jack, tag myself, and we'll catch you in that next one. See you guys. <laughs>